you're new to Hills Church, we're in like this long series, but it's a good series. It's going to go for 31 weeks. We're up to week 18, and it's called The Story. It's basically, we're following a book that has selections of scripture from Genesis to Revelations in chronological order so that we can follow the wide story arc of God and humanity. We started with creation and humans made in the, in the perfect image of God in, in relationship with him that was broken when we humans did the wrong thing and defied God and sin entered the world. That's when that separation came. And since then, we've been, you know, the, the Bible really is God's redemption story for, for humankind. We've been tracking his plan. In particular, we've been following the, the nation of Israel They were the people that God says, you can be in covenant with me because I want you to reveal me to the world. So they followed him and they lived out the beautiful vision that he gave them at Mount Sinai on what it would be like to be his people. And they were going to bless all nations. We've been drawing lessons and parallels because, again, they're God's people, we're God's people. So there's things in there, there's principles that we can learn for us today, the church. We've been following them from Egypt. God delivered them from captivity through his power into a promised land in Canaan. We followed their story as they, um, they really got to know what that means to be his people, and they lived it out. Holy people committed to him, only to see over time them waver and fall away. And here's the problem. Over time, God's people, and this can include us, we have this human tendency to lose our zeal for God. The Israelites fell out of covenant. Eventually, the surrounding culture infiltrated their culture, and you really couldn't see any difference. They weren't really the light in the world anymore. No longer were they set apart. No longer could they reveal God to the world through how they followed him. Eventually, the kingdom split in two. You've been following this, hopefully, each week, reading at home. The northern kingdom stopped trusting God, and they were... They were overthrown by the Assyrians and many were taken off into captivity. Then the southern kingdom suffered the same fate about 140 years later and the Babylonians conquered them. And again, many were taken off into into captivity, into Babylon. Some of their cities were destroyed and those who were left behind were living under Babylonian rule. And so here we are. This is where we're up to today. Really, the nation of Israel doesn't exist in that sense anymore. You know, the, the Hebrews are scattered And nowhere on earth do they govern in their own right. And so this week, the story, it moves location. The reading takes us to Babylon, where many of God's people now live as exiles under King Nebuchadnezzar. Everyone turn to their neighbor right now and say, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar. How'd you go? It's a good name, hey? Who would be brave to call one of their kids Nebuchadnezzar? That'd be... There's a challenge for you young parents out there. (laughs) For the faithful Jews in Babylon, they're now in a completely pagan culture. You know, it's really hard to be a follower of Yahweh in Babylon. The pressure is high to conform to the the new pagan ways and, and religious norms. And the lessons from four people in particular who remained faithful to God while in exile provide us with, I just think, some useful lessons on how to be holy in exile. Now, I'm going to draw these parallels and lessons for us today, but I don't want to paint a picture in our own situation that is exaggerated or not real, okay? So there's principles for us to learn. 
Because when I say exile, there's a difference between the exile these Hebrews had to face and what we might, we might perhaps classify as, oh, we feel like we're living in, in exile. Do you know what I mean? We're going to take the principle of, of how it is to live in a culture that doesn't really honour God and apply it to our lives today. We don't want to dishonour those who live in other countries who really know what that means. Okay? There's no doubt that more and more we're experiencing change here in our culture. And it's fair to say that the culture in the West in general, I think the word that is often used is post-Christian, or the two words, I should say, is post-Christian. The Christian voice that advocates for God's moral ethic and for his ways to be the, West, to be the best ways for us, you know, there's close to no voice now for that. In fact, it's more than just being ignored. Now that voice is often derided and the pressure to be quiet and go away is high. And admittedly, sometimes we Christians, we, you know, we, we bring that derision on ourselves. You know, we're going to take a stand and defend our position. And we just, sometimes, I'm not talking about us personally or it could be, but the church in general, sometimes we just don't do it well. And in my opinion, sometimes the voice advocating for God's ways can come across as angry and harsh you know, it really lacks the love and compassion and humility that Jesus really did show us and, and ask of us. If we're going to be ambassadors for Christ, as Paul says we are, we need to act like Christ and not like the Pharisees. You know what I mean, right? Now, I get that even when, doing it, when, when done in a love and compassionate way, people will still reject the message that's always been the way. It's always been that way. But we have to make sure our message is rejected for the right reasons, you know, and we don't do damage to uh, our witness. So around 605... That was my introduction. <laughs> yeah. So around 605 BC, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego found themselves in exile that was very, very real. And this is as real as it gets. And I paused on that last name because as a kid, I was saying Abednego. And as an adult, I realized I was saying it wrong, and my brain still says Abednego, and every time I see it, it's Abednego, right? Everyone turn to your neighbor and say Abednego. <laughs> okay, good. You're with me. Nebuchadnezzar, Abednego. We should be right for the rest of this, this message now. I read this week that Daniel was probably about 16 when he and his friends were forced into a new country. We've got to put ourselves in their shoes. You know, we probably, maybe we can a little bit because we see what, what it's like with some countries overseas, like Ukrainians, for example, having to flee at the moment. He's probably lost a lot of his family and friends. You know, there was a war before he went. Maybe the job that he was being trained in is no longer possible. His faith community is not what it was. He's not, he doesn't have the temple anymore. He's in a completely new culture with new customs, a new language, different food. And he's being forced into an, a completely new way of life. Put ourselves in his shoes. What would that be like? And as always with Scripture, there's lessons. How do we as cultural outsiders, with the pressure that can sometimes come upon us to conform, how do, how do we still live as God's people? Before we get to the example of the four men, you have to hear God's instruction to the exiles because he gave it to them. So that actually, they knew how to do this because God literally gave them a letter from the prophet Jeremiah Beck gave us a little sneak peek of this last week in Jeremiah 29. 
But this, this really does lay the foundation for God's will for his people in exile. And so we're going to read some of it again, starting in verse 4 from Jeremiah 29. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. To all those carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number. Do not decrease. So you get the picture. God's saying, you're going to go there and, and you should live. You should actually live. Don't, don't just withdraw. Live. And then he goes on to say, and this is, this is key. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers you too will prosper. Awesome words from Jeremiah, awesome words from God, actually, to, to these people. How can we be holy in exile? Or how can we be holy in our context? Not by working against our city. Not by withdrawing and separating ourselves physically or intellectually or, or relationally or even emotionally from our city, our, our community but by getting involved and working for the peace and prosperity of those around us, of our community, of our nation. Being set apart and holy is not removing ourselves physically. You know, it's not removing ourselves relationally. Being set apart is trusting in and being transformed into God's ways and his heart becoming our heart ahead of the culture that doesn't align with God's culture but we're still in. We can solidly be in the world without being of the world. And to be honest, we should be because being in the world is God's heart because like the Israelites, we are his people and we're to reveal God to the world. God's culture is love for the people of his world. We know John 3.16, for God loved the world. Wherever you are in this world, and like the Hebrews, as God's people, we're to be, the one, to be the ones who point people to God through living for him and loving others as he does. Daniel and his friends did the same. They live out these words of Jeremiah really well. So here's point one about exile, or about these, these four. First thing is they resisted bitterness, they remained respectful, and they made themselves useful. And again, I've combined three into one in the interest of time. But they do paint a similar picture. And if you read the chapter this week, you'll know that Daniel and his three friends were selected to serve the king. They didn't fight it. They didn't withdraw. You know, to serve, you must be someone who must be willing and able and gifted. They saw something in him. It kind of reminds me, remember we were talking about Joseph when he went off into Egypt? And next thing you know, he's serving the pharaoh. These four worked closely with the people that were overseeing their training. But they weren't like them. And yet they still worked with them. When they wanted to do something in a different way, they collaborated with them. They remained respectful. Their integrity and character was noticed. And so they were useful. So let's read about it in Daniel 1. We'll start at verse 18. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, this is after their training, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. That was their Hebrew names, by the way. 
So they entered the king's service, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. So there was, they were obviously working for the peace and prosperity of where, they, of where they were in exile, of the city. They didn't want to be there, I'd have to imagine. But Daniel found a way to accept this. This is where God had put him for this season. See, he resisted bitterness. I could imagine it'd be easy to be bitter in that place. Why would you work for the good of the people who had attacked your nation and dragged you off? Why would you? I'd be bitter. Well, I'm hoping I won't be. I'm just saying, you could see how easy it would be. One of the reasons, as Jeremiah noted, is is so because when your city prospers, so do you. It's a lesson for us. Resentment and bitterness about our culture that is making bad choices or even a culture that feels oppressive doesn't help us, to be honest, if we want to make a difference. Bitterness doesn't help if we want to make a difference. It doesn't convince anyone of anything. In fact, bitterness and resentment only hurts one person. It's generally us. Yes, we know and agree that God's way is the best way for people. And we know that we know there's going to be a pile of broken people that will emerge out of a culture that rejects God and goes their own way. We understand that. This is the pattern of history all the way back in the Old Testament. Part of our answer is to be ready to help those damaged by our culture. You know, those left behind, those neglected, those who struggle to fit in, those who follow and bow down to cultural idols and are going to be damaged by that. Eventually, the holiness of these idols leave people empty and broken. Now, don't get me wrong. As I said, I agree we should be sounding the warning and lovingly show a way, a better way with God. But at the same time, we should be ready to pick up the pieces and not just be about, I told you so. So for our benefit and for the benefit of our communities, we choose not to be bitter if our voice is rejected or if pressure comes our way. Because bitterness causes more damage than good. Instead, I think we follow the example of Daniel and his friends. We remain respectful and we make ourselves useful. We can be angry and bitter and not be useful, but all that makes us is angry and bitter and not useful. Or we can seek the peace and prosperity of our community because that should point people to God. It seems to me that God wants our communities to flourish and the church has an important role to play in that Daniel and his friends made themselves very useful. They worked for that. And they remained, and they remained, faithful to the commands and ways of God. No doubt it's it's hard to hold those two truths together. And as we find out later, sometimes it becomes impossible. So what does working for peace and prosperity in our community look like? Well, just for our own example, I think we've already started in many good ways. You know, I always talk about our counselling service because I'm in the office every week and I see people come in every single day, one after the other. Often not church people, just people in our community, families who are struggling. We're a church working for peace and prosperity in our community, but there's more to come yet. We are on the verge of starting uh, some programs that are going to help children who have anger problems. Chris is about to to start that soon. I'm excited about that because there's some, some kids that are really struggling in our community, and we're going to help them. 
We're also on the verge of starting some parenting classes, not just for us here. If you want to come, you can. This is, I'm talking about for our city, for our community around us. On top of that, we do things like run-up shops and playgroups and all that sort of stuff. It's exciting. In fact, next year, I'm already talking to a couple in this church who are very interested in cross-cultural ministries, and they're going to start with English classes, and I'm super excited about where that's going to lead us working for the peace and prosperity in our community. But beyond that, folks, church, all of you, where you are, starting businesses, employing people, helping where you can, working in your workplaces, in your schools, in your universities, you work for peace and prosperity, and you're useful. And I really hope that God, that people see God through you, because again, we're going to be God's people. Hopefully we, we bless all nations too. Number two, they never lost their hope in God's promise. Heard this one already, haven't you, (laughs) as we've gone through the story. But again, as we say each week, we need to keep hearing this and we need to keep holding on to the promises because we want to keep our zeal. Remember what we said right back at the beginning? Right at the beginning of their exile, there was a promise from Jeremiah. So we're still in Jeremiah 29. This is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. These are plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. This is another one of these recurring themes through the story, and hopefully we're learning our lesson. The exiles, they had a promise of hope to hold on to, and it helped them through their time in exile, and we have a promise too, church, that we too can cling on to, We don't have necessarily a 70-year time frame on it like the the exiles did, but here's here's an example of it from Hebrews. You might remember this from our Hebrews series. Chapter 6, so God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it's impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. That hope, in other words, is a new covenant with God through Jesus right now. A covenant of right relationship with him is what that author's talking about. A hope of eternity. They had a hope of in 70 years we're going back to Jerusalem. We have a hope of eternity with Christ. I got one amen out of that one. Let's go for more. Yeah, like a conductor here. Come on. Number three, they trusted God who has never abandoned his people. Even in exile, if there's a lesson from the story right back from the beginning, it's that God never leaves his people. People leave God all the time. God doesn't do the leaving. And we've got two awesome examples and you know these ones really well. I love them. But we're going to read through them today. First one is right at the end of Daniel's time of serving the king. 
and, and it was kind of at that, towards the end of that 70 years of service, he faced a crisis moment. He had to make that stand of no compromise. Even though he had been working all of those years for the peace and prosperity of his city, he had served the king well, but under the new king Darius, he found himself in a situation that may cost him his life. Daniel had done so well, in fact, that Darius wanted to appoint him as an administrator over his whole kingdom. So Nebuchadnezzar's passed on, by the way, by now. A new king, and there's a bit of discussion about Darius and Cyrus and how that all works, and is it the same king and all that sort of stuff. You can research that if you want. Too long to go into today. Anyway, Darius wants to appoint him, and a bunch of jealous officials lay a a trap for him. They convinced Darius to pass a law that said, if anyone prays to any god or person other than the king for um, 30 days, they're going to throw them, they're going to get thrown into the lion's den. Now imagine being a city that has a den of lions, for starters. You know, imagine having that hanging over your head as possible punishment. That's pretty intense. Imagine being the person who had to look after them. Lots of things enter my mind. But anyway, Daniel 6, verse 10. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. And three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and, asked, and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. And then the king, you know, he realizes that this is kind of a trap that's been laid. He can't get out of it, though, and, and there's no choice, but Daniel goes in to the den. Verse 16, so the king gave the order and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve, continually rescue you. Nice to see that he noted this about Daniel that he was a continual servant of God. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace, and he spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and he hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called out to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I found, I, I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I nor have I ever done anything wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted God. And if you read on, you know something bad happens to all the officials after that. (laughs) Example number two. I've been trying to keep the story as PG as possible as we go through. It's not always possible. Doing my best. But example number two comes from Daniel's three friends, many years earlier, actually, when Nebuchadnezzar was still king. Again, if you watch VeggieTales, you know this story really well, (laughs) but there was a huge idol and a a decree that everyone was to bow down to it when the music played it. And if you didn't bow down, this time it wasn't a lion's den, there's a furnace, right? So in this city... If you do the wrong thing, there's a, there's a lion's den or there's a furnace. So, you know, I'm not sure which one I want to go into. But anyway, 
this is what happened. Everyone bowed down, the music played, and, and except for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the king was furious, and he challenged them, and he warned them, if they don't conform, if you don't bow down, you're going in. Daniel chapter 3, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. I think we've already read this this morning. <laughs> Esther is, oh, she already knew. God was working. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. So the king's furious and uh, they're thrown into the furnace. Verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and he asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? Certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire and they're unbound and they're unharmed And that fourth, he looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and he shouted, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors and royal advisors crowded around them. That would create quite a scene, wouldn't it? You would imagine. Everyone would want to have a little look to see what's going on here. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was their hair on their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there's no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any God except their own God. Yeah. There's times that this will happen. We have to stay faithful to God. There's debate about who the fourth person was. Was there an angel? Or was it Jesus? Because he looked like the son of God's. I'd like to think it's Jesus, but it doesn't really matter, does it? Because if it was an angel, God sent the angel. It means this. God was with them. And this is the point over and over again as we've read through the story. God will never leave you. God's promises, he promises to always be with us. We can go all the way back to Moses. We've read this one. Deuteronomy chapter 31. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Do not be afraid. Church, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. And you're thinking, well, that's Moses. That's a long time ago. All right. Let's go to Jesus. The very last thing that he wants to say to us before he ascends, in Matthew 28, and surely, as in definitely, absolutely, I am with you always to the end. 
If you follow Jesus, he's with you always. He is always with you. And I doubt any of us will ever be threatened with being burned to death for not bowing down. There may be some in our world that could. But here's the thing. You can refuse because Jesus is with you. And you can trust him to be with you in that moment. And I just love the faith of those three guys. And again, I'll go back to what Esther read. Verse 17. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God who serves, we serve is able to deliver us from it. So we believe that God is able. We believe in who God is and what he can do. But even if he doesn't, we want the world to know that we will not serve gods or worship any images set up before us, any cultural idols thrown towards us to bow down to. Even if God doesn't rescue us from the fire in this life, we know he's rescued us from another fire. Eternity without God is sometimes described as fire in the Bible. I'm not sure if it's a literal fire. It, it might be, I don't know, but it's a place where God is not, so it may as well be. The promise for those who are redeemed though, is eternity with Jesus. We're already rescued and given that place that we're going to be in. The promise is that God will never leave us, and it's an eternal promise. So even if God doesn't deliver us from a difficult trial in this life the way that we want, he still ultimately delivers us. But the best thing for me is that no matter what, no matter what, it doesn't matter. I know that we don't have lions and, and furnaces, but whatever that is that we're going through, it doesn't matter. God is with me. That's what I need to know. And you know what? That's enough. That's enough. I do know and I do trust that God answers, by the way, our prayers. But even if he doesn't, he's done enough. And he's promised that he's with me. All right. Why don't we stand together? Sometimes we can feel the pressure, we can feel like outcasts. Nevertheless, we're God's people that work for the peace and prosperity of our city. Amen? So keep doing what you're doing to the best of your abilities and avoid bitterness. Team, you can come. Sorry. Work for the peace and prosperity of our community because God loves all the people in the world. No matter what happens, we'll hold fast to the hope of God's promises for our future. And we'll always remember that we can trust God in every situation because he's promised to never leave us. Church, Jesus is here today. Does everyone agree with me? So here's the thing. Sometimes when I'm forgetting about that, I'm just feeling flat or lonely. I actually visualize Jesus standing beside of me. Now, that's, you think that's a weird mystical thing to do. That's truth. All you're doing is picturing it, what's a reality, okay? So I want to invite you this morning. Visualize Jesus right there beside you. Maybe he's standing in front of you because he needs to tell you something. Maybe he's standing beside you because he wants to put his arm around your shoulder. 
Visualize Jesus because he's here today. Why don't you just take a moment to let him talk to you? This morning, as, as your people, we hear from your word and we're reminded that we're, we're here for a reason. We're in this place. We're in Brisbane. We're on the north side of Brisbane. We're in Everton Hills for a reason. We have a role to take. We have a role to play. And we trust you with it. Lord, I pray for our community that indeed, through our actions, there will be peace and prosperity for people. But Lord, more than anything, we know that comes from people turning to you. And I pray that will be the case. I pray, Father, that your church would be effective in that way. That we will not only care and love for people, Lord, but we ultimately, God, we point them to you. That's the answer. Help us to be there. Help us to get there, Lord Jesus, we pray. Lord, not to withdraw, not to be angry, not to necessarily fight against people. No bitterness, Lord. I pray you to move that from our hearts. Instead, Lord, we hold, we hold firmly to the promises you give us and we thank you that you are with us as we go about this task of going into your world and making disciples of all nations and baptizing them and teaching them to obey. Lord, the best way is your way. And we submit ourselves to that today. We know that you are working. We know that you are moving. Even when, when we can't tell, even when we can't feel it or see it, we know that you are working. And thank you for that today in Jesus' name.